Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Trigger warning. The following episode contains descriptions of graphic violence and adult language. Viewer discretion is advised. I'm Danielle. I'm Max. And each Wednesday, we crack open a bottle of wine and dive into some thrills, chills, and spills. This is Innocent Till Tipsy. Two weeks ago, we spoke on the Starbrook murders. Um, For those of you who don't know, we're going to do the quick recap, super cliff notes version, just to cover um, what we discussed in the last episode. But you really should go back because there's a lot. And as you're about to find out with Whitney and Andy, there's so much to this case. So it's good to have an overview before we start talking about this. Um, But the year is 1960. Three women, Frances Murphy, Mildred Lindquist, and Lillian Oding left their suburban Chicago homes for LaSalle County, Illinois, which is a very small county. And they did this during the coldest March on record. And they went for winter vacation. So already things aren't making sense. (laughs) But maybe, maybe they're into that. It's okay. So when you see the pictures, the falls are like a calendar. It's beautiful. Yes. Um, They go to Starve Rock Lodge, which is a luxurious resort. And they are last officially seen the day that they check in to this lodge on Monday, March 14th, 1960. Their bodies would be discovered in a cave on Wednesday, March 16th. Their faces were bashed in with what police assumed was a tree branch. This tree branch would later be displayed as a trophy by one of the detectives on his mantle. Each of the women were laid out in the cave, spread eagle, with their undergarments pulled down. Not sexually assaulted, though. These murders would send the small county into a huge panic. There's a madman on the loose. And where is he? And not only that, there's a moral panic. There's not only this moral panic, but there's also a financial panic because this lodge brings in so much of their money. So they are losing business. No one wants to go there. There's a murder on the loose. So... There's panic. There's pressure on the police to solve this case. The husbands of the women would soon release a $30,000 reward for information on their wives. And, oh, I can't remember who chipped in. I'm sorry. I was just kind of like. Nick Spiros, the owner of the lodge, 5K. Oh, yes. As Max said, Nick Spiros, he would chip in 5K. And this would be split between so many people um, that were involved in the case, investigators and everything. So. Initially, it was being reported that they may be looking for two suspects as the crime. There was DNA found at the crime that would lead to two suspects along with how could one man have held off these three women. But police attention soon turned to 21-year-old Chester Weger, a dishwasher at the Starve Rock Lodge, and their attention never seemed to waver after that. Chester would be found guilty of these murders and sentenced to life in prison with no real physical evidence. He would spend the next 59 years of his life in prison, was not released until February 2020 at the age of 80. When a jury member was asked why they didn't give Chester the death penalty, she said they didn't just in case they had made a mistake. So, as an innocent man of these murders, spent the majority of his life in prison for a crime he did not commit, and more so did our justice system fail him. Um. We're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, right, Max? It's so crazy. Um, Today, we're going to be having Chester's current lawyer, Andy Hale, on our podcast, along with his co-host, Whitney Braun. They have their own podcast, which I would definitely recommend you look into, especially if you want to know more about this case. It's called The Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale. And they go through court documents, evidence. They they post it all on their website. It's it's amazing. And their blog is just a wealth of information. But before we have Andy and Whitney on... Max, what wine do you have for us today? All right. Today I have for you 2019 Uncaged, a Decab Sav. Uh, it's from California. It's uh, $15 a bottle. 
And it has that owl on on it. I thought this was like a kind of a spooky owl. Yeah. Um, an owl is a guardian of the vine and myths say it is present when the spirit is set free. We respect the land and strive to act as long-term stewards. So their commitment to sustainable farming and winemaking practices favor nature over man's intervention. That's why they have an owl on here. Um, I Have you poured yourself a glass? Did you taste it? All right. What do you taste? Ah. It's great wine. I like this a lot. I like it's very velvety. It goes down really smooth. Yeah. Uh, honestly, cherries. Lots of black cherry. Yep. Black cherry, mocha, milk chocolate. All my favorite things. So I really do like the smooth and balanced and elegant finesse defines the long and lingering finish. That's and for as affordable as it was, I think I spent $14. Um, and you said Ooh. what 13 for you? Uh b- 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 15. F- so- oh. 13 under 20. This is going on my under 20 list. <laughs> no, I like this. Yeah. Aged in oak. They didn't tell me what kind. 14.5% alcohol. Um, and yeah, smooth and balanced. That's yeah. very accurate. And I think the uncaged goes really well because at the moment, you know, Chester got out, you know, it sucks. Yes. That it's so long, but yeah, no. So I'm excited. Well, let's get to our guests. Andy Hale began his career in filmmaking and is a documentary film producer. He's also a civil rights attorney for over 30 with over 30 years worth of experience currently representing Chester Weger, who we're going to be discussing today. And we also discussed a couple of weeks ago in our Starbuck murder series. Um, and he did appear on the HBO documentary series the murders at starved rock his film work for the majority it seems you deal mostly with cases concerning wrongful convictions am i correct andy yeah Mm -hmm. excellent and his co-host whitney braun who we also have here with us is a bioethicist i had never heard of this had you heard of that max no i didn't know this Yes, I actually had to look it up. And yeah. I, this is what I read. I want to vi- get you to fact check me. So bioethics is the study of and response to moral and ethical questions. Am I right? Yeah. So basically, I mean, I think actually the best way to summarize it is to borrow a line from Jurassic Park. So it's like not a equi- you were so busy trying to figure out what you could do. You stopped to ask the question. You didn't stop to ask the question, what should you do? So that's yeah. basically what we do. Science moves super fast. And and so we we engage those questions regarding like, okay, just because you can do it doesn't mean you necessarily should. And then what should be legal to do? That's so cool. So almost kind of like an Ian Malcolm kind of situation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's exciting. You're also a professor, researcher, authenticator too. So you know your stuff. Um, And I'd love to pick your brain sometime as someone I like deep dive into these cases, probably more so than I should. And then my episodes are like hours long. And so I'd love to know where you get your sources and everything. Um, But you were the supervising producer and lead researcher on that HBO docuseries as well. Um, So you know everything kind of that has to do with this case. So I'm we're so excited to have you both on. Thank you for joining us today. This case has been like fascinating ever since your team sent it over to us. It's great to be here. Looking forward to talking about it. So we are innocent old tipsy. So I think Max poured her glass. Where, we didn't get our wine. Where's our wine at? I know. You should have brought <laughs> I don't, it. I don't understand this. I mean, the guests should get the same wine. Right? We, should be, we should be having the wine and telling you our opinions on the wine, too. We should have shipped <laughs> a what bottle. What a lost opportunity. <laughs> Terrible. We should have shipped a bottle over to you. Absolutely. Well, I have I'm, to, a, I'm, I'm a pregnant woman on my lunch break. So so you guys, you uh, guys have to just drink without me. <laughs> <laughs> What were you going to say, Max? Sorry. Oh, I have a feeling like there's so many questions we have that this might not be our only conversation. So I could talk about this case time. for days, for days. I know. I feel like we know you, honestly, because we've listened to your podcast like over and over and just combed and combed and combed. And I, there's so many questions. You know, what's funny. We did the podcast basically to, you know, talk about the case in a deeper dive. And I feel like there needs to be a second podcast that goes into an even deeper dive because there's just so much you can really get into. If you really want to get down in the weeds, you really can, you know? I feel like your viewership might've spiked just from us alone. Cause I know, I don't know about Max, but I know for myself, I have listened to your episodes several times over because <laughs> you say things and your, your, your information's so quick. Some, I catch something new. Like every time I listen to it, they're like, it's weird. You've got, uh, you've got 10,000 downloads, but you only got a thousand listeners. You know? it's like, <laughs> All these crazy true crime people. Yeah. Um, so what made you start this podcast for your client? So I think it it was, I, I'm trying to educate, you know, um, I'm at the stage now where I am trying to, 
I'm advocating that Chester Weger is innocent. It's very hard. It is so hard if you are in prison for something you didn't do. It is very hard to prove your case. First, you have to get a lawyer. Then you have to somehow, you know, go about the whole court process. But even with this case, if you think about it, there's so much to talk about factually that uh, I thought the podcast was a way to have that conversation where, and what I've tried to do, Whitney and I both, is to try to be very factual. Uh, you know, on our website, as you can see at andyhillpodcast.com, I'm posting all the documents we're talking about. You know, you can read them yourself. So I think it's an opportunity to really educate and get into the details more because most people who have an opinion on the case, whether you think Chester Weger is guilty or innocent, it's based on anecdotal information, what your parents told you growing up, what you read in the newspapers, or maybe you just think he's guilty because he confessed and that's it. And I don't expect anybody out there to have read any documents. You know, how? why would they? They don't have them. So I think this is a great opportunity, a podcast, to really get into the details of the case. It's a format that is perfect for that. Yeah, I think that's where we found ourselves after we watched the documentary, even having questions like deeper dive questions that then going through and listening to your podcast, you're asking and answering some of those like deeper dive questions with those documents and we can go in and look at that. So I like that additional like format after you've watched the documentary, putting the pieces together and having a conversation. It feels like we have, we're having a conversation with you. Right. Okay. You know, I mean the HBO, I mean, God, I mean, I love it that it got to HBO because that got a lot of attention obviously to the case, but even in a three hour, a three part docu-series, right. Where you're kind of telling a story in a, in a video format, you're not getting into, Oh, there's a, there's a newspaper article dated September 15th, 1960 that says X, Y, and Z. Like you're not having that kind of a conversation. You're having a, a film, you know, experience. So it was a good start. The HBO, I think docu-series was a great start, but the podcast I think was the logical extension to really now, you know, talk about it in, in a much more detailed way. When I think the, the bottom line is, is the case isn't solved, Right. So, so you, so you can't make a documentary and put it on a shelf and go, okay, well, we did our job. Let's, uh, let's move on to the next thing. It's not Saul, right? You want answers. And so sort of the beauty of, of the podcast is, is what we're experiencing is that people listen and then they maybe have a tip that they heard from an uncle who heard it from someone else, you know, and then they email us. And sometimes those tips turn into something and sometimes they don't, but, but it's just getting, getting the conversation going amongst more people to hopefully shed some light on, on this, on this case. I mean, that's the goal, right? The goal is to, is to close it, right. Is to find the answers. Yeah. You were saying Andy, that like a lot of people may have heard from their parents and that was something that was kind of driven home by the docu series about, um, you know, this was the, um, Oh, why can I think of the word prosecutor's son um, right. that was kind of driving uh, this docu-series. And to that point, you had mentioned in your podcast that you had grown up in the Chicago area. Did you grow up hearing about this case? No, you know, it's funny when I um, when I first heard about the case. So the backstory, I kind of give you a little short story about how I heard about it. Yeah, uh, I was representing a guy who had been in prison for over 45 years, who I thought was innocent. And he always for 45 years maintained he was innocent. And in, he kept coming up for parole and being denied parole. And when you're up for parole, at some point, if you express remorse for your crime, you have a better chance of getting released. Like if you said, hey, look, I've been in prison 40 years. I'm sorry. I've learned. This guy would never express remorse because he didn't do it. So one day, and I think this is 2017, he was up for parole. He got denied. The next day in the paper, in the Chicago Tribune, it was a front page article, Starve Rock Killer Denied Parole. I never heard of the Starve Rock murders. I never heard of Chester Weger. I wasn't born in 1960. But what struck me was... Here's a guy just like my client, Cleve Heidelberg, who for a half a century was maintaining his innocence, uh, never expressed remorse. And I thought, man, it just sounds like Cleve Heidelberg's twin brother. And so I actually just reached out to Chester Weger and said, I, I, I'd love to hear more about this case. And that's how the whole thing got started. Wow. And like you took this on after two is at least two other lawyers had taken this case on. Correct. Um, yeah. He, you know, I don't know if he's ever had a, he had a public defender an appellate public defender, Donna Kelly, who 
I'm really standing on the shoulders of her. She did some amazing work Mm -hmm. in 2005. I posted it on our website. She filed a petition for executive clemency. That's really kind of a roadmap. Um, So she did some work for uh, a couple of years for him, you know, in the early 2000s. And then I kind of picked it up, you know, 2017. And that's been about it. I think what happens is, and this is what's scary. Once, you know, you get convicted, uh, I think you're still thinking you can unwind it if you're actually innocent. And at some point, once once your case starts collecting dust, everybody forgets about you. You know, and it just becomes the more time goes on, the more it's just like case closed. Um, And it's really hard to bring attention to your case as time goes on. And so I think his case was just kind of in that category where it was so old and everybody was very opinionated on it. Um, It just kind of it just kind of died, you know, until I kind of got back involved Uh, and then. The more I dug, the more I was like, oh, my God, what about this? Or, oh, my God, what about that? And I just I just, you know, got more and more convinced of his innocence. Um, if I would have right away found a bunch of stuff that just led me to believe he's guilty, I would have dropped out and been like, OK, no harm, no foul. I checked it out because that's what I always tell people. I'm a straight shooter. Um, I'm not trying to put a square peg in a round hole. But if if I think you're innocent, I will fight like heck for you and, you know, really be in your corner. Yeah, I was um, gonna say like to that point, like we had been wa- we did the whole thing on Ryan Ferguson. Um, I think that was like our first episode on the podcast, and um, we talked about Kathleen Zellner, and she had said in the documentary uh, Dream Killer that um, you know it's so hard to get these convictions reversed. Like once you are convicted guilty you it's so hard and so it really broke my heart when i watched docuseries and chester said well i'll just sign this confession now yeah and then i'll prove my innocence in trial and i my heart sank because i was like it's not going to happen you know yeah i there's another documentary you should check out it was actually was my first you know kind of foray into filmmaking it was called a murder in the park so it was on showtime it was on netflix it's a true story about a guy named elstory simon who was wrongfully convicted and falsely confessed to a crime he didn't commit and uh, spent 16 years in prison until we were ultimate. I think the documentary played a big, big part in bringing attention to his case to the Cook County state's attorney here in Chicago. And when they got wind of the documentary, they really kind of rolled the sleeves up and said, okay, we better take a close look at this case. Let's check it out, which they did, which led to his exoneration. But, you know, you know, there's there's so few inmates who can, uh, you know, who like, oh, let's make a documentary about your case. Like, you know, I mean, that's just not what most people can do, obviously. Yeah. And have the resources to do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and then and then just continue that thought. So what happened? Al Story Simon, because of our documentary Murder in the Park, he got released from prison. He gets out of prison and then he tells me, hey, can you check out my best friend Cleve Heidelberg's case? He's innocent too. And I'm like, okay, it's not really what I do, but I'll check it out. I checked out his case. I'm like, oh my God, he got convicted of shooting and killing a Peoria, Illinois police officer in 1970. I worked on his case. We made a documentary movie about it. It's almost done. It's incredible. And we got him out of prison after 47 years. And then because he was up for parole on the same day as Chester Weger, it led me to Chester Weger. So it's been this incredible Al Story Simon passing the baton to Cleve Heidelberg, passing the baton to Chester Weger. I would have never imagined I would be going down this winding trail the last 10 years. It's crazy. No moss grows under your stone. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Well, I have so many questions about the actual case. So we just want to dive in and pick your brains. Let's do All it. Right. Well, so my, <laughs> it's funny, I was like listing out my questions. And my first question is like, so it just is shattering from what we've just been talking about. <laughs> but were the victims undergarments ever found? Were they like beside the bodies or? Oh, yeah, I mean, they, they were still wearing them. They were yeah. just, um, they were just displayed uh, in, in mm-hmm. a way that I mean, we've described it sometimes in the podcast is like almost like macabre snow angels right so they were they yeah. were laid out in this position and their undergarments were pulled down but, pulled down. but okay. nothing was taken save for one thing which andy talks about a lot which would be 
the missing fingertip. There was actually nothing else taken, not even undergarments. That's what doesn't make sense to me. So the police's initial statement or their idea is that it's a burglary gone wrong kind of thing. And that's well, not really. I mean, at first they think it's a sexual assault. Okay. You know, they think because the way the bodies are displayed, Mm -hmm. you know, where two of the three are naked from the waist down and they're, and they're literally like, you know, like snow angels. So their legs are spread. Mm -hmm. If you walked upon the crime scene, you would be like, Oh, I mean, these women got raped. You know, I mean, that's clearly what it looks like. The botched robbery doesn't come up until Chester confesses in November. And that's his confession story. And we can talk about why that makes no sense. But initially, uh, it just looked like some kind of crazy sex attack, you know, in the in the days after the, the bodies were found. Yeah. So and they had initially been looking at two individuals, correct? They were thinking it must be at least two suspects with the women or were they kind of shuffling that back and forth? Because I know there was some newspaper articles that that was like the title, like two suspects or more they're looking for. What happened was they found two types of hair in Lillian Odin's hand, Um, 18 strands of hair. So not just like one or two strands. That's a fair amount. 18 strands, uh, a dark hair and a light hair. And what's interesting is, you know, it's 1960. They sent those hairs to the Eastman Kodak company, right? So, you know, older people like me, I remember Kodak cameras, you know, I mean, younger generation probably not as familiar with that. They analyzed the hairs and, and, uh, there's only so much you can do, but they clearly said it was two different hairs, a dark hair and a light hair. So at that time, there's a lot of newspaper articles, and we posted those saying they're looking for two people, two killers with two types of hair. But I think like initially, uh, the the net was cast wide. I think, you know, if you go back and, and just look at sort of like uh, a play by play, a moment by moment, like looking through all the police documents and just line them up, chron- chron- you just line them up chronologically, you can see that they're just like grasping at any potential weirdo in the neighborhood, anyone who worked at the lodge, just just interviewing everyone, trying to get a handle on who on earth would have done this. Like newspapers ran hypotheticals of like must have been an escaped mental you know institution patient, um, and then as Andy said, there's two hairs, so it must be two people. And then eventually gets sort of whittled down to, well, it's Chester Weger and it's just him. And then, right, the chaos sort of ensues from there. Yeah. And another thing that, like, really stuck with me through this case was they kept reminding us that a blowtorch had been used to recover. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I've never heard of that. was that like a common practice that doesn't seem <laughs> to be a blowtorch at a crime scene is not something I would recommend. And it's, you would never see it today. You know, they're melting snow with a blowtorch. Um, that's just, you know, it's 1960. I mean, talk about old school crime scene processing. Um, you know, a blowtorch, think of, think of all the things that's eliminating as potential evidence. Right. Um, right. So, I mean, you would never see that today, but it is, it did happen, uh, as crazy as that sounds. Yeah, that's why we were looking. Th- oh, I'm sorry. When we were looking through the FOIA documents, there was this this image that took me forever to figure out what it was. It just looked kind of like a weird pipe with kind of a, a nozzle on the end, and then I finally figured it out it was one of the blowtorches. They had they had photographed it and put it into into evidence, and yeah, it's just basically like a, a blowtorch you would use to light a camp stove, um, like the you know Boy Scouts or campers would have had, and then just took that and melted away. The, the, the frost um, looking for what I don't know because if you were looking for footprints if you were looking for let's say there's blood hair I mean yeah. blood just disappears if you're trying to find a trail of blood or a hair I mean think of all the trace evidence that just fibers I mean it's just gone you know um, which it seemed like a little ironic to me and I guess like we're allowed to speak on our own opinions you obviously um, so correct me if I'm wrong but like it seems a little ironic that Harlan just shows up and happens to step on the murder one of the murder weapons when they're like canvassing with blow torches. And he's like, Oh, found it right here. Like yeah. that theme. Yeah. Very. I don't know. I don't know how to wrap my mind around that. Yeah. You know, that's something I talk about in the podcast episode that's coming out uh, in a couple days. Uh, Cause I have a, I have an episode coming out with you and I both where I'm making the case of premeditation. But what I talk about in that case is the very next day after the bodies are found, the next day, uh, they have found this tree limb that has some blood on it. 
And Harlan Warren is saying he's positive this is the murder weapon. Okay. I mean, they don't know anything. It's the next day. But yet, here's the big part. A week later, there's a newspaper article saying an Illinois State Police Crime Lab report has concluded the tree limb cannot be the murder weapon because it was so rotten, it would have cracked upon multiple blows. I've never seen that crime lab report. Uh, the only thing I've, time I've seen this is in this newspaper article. So explain to me then, everybody out there, like if Chester Weger's confession is he used the tree limb, but all the, everybody was told by a report a week after the bodies were found that the tree limb could not have been the murder weapon because it was so rotten and fragile. I mean, what? Sounds like some of that evidence they didn't have to turn over to his defense. Yeah, right, well, exactly. That, exactly. That tree limb, that tree limb took on a life of its own because it it not only is is purported to be the murder weapon, but then is kept as a souvenir, shellacked, um, you know, dipped in resin so that it's preserved because it's this rickety termite rotted whatever. I mean, it's it's a very fragile tree branch. And then is displayed, so the story goes, by many people in the community on the mantle of lead detective uh, Dummett's fireplace for years. And then apparently sometimes was in the possession of Harlan Warren. And I mean, I guess it's like, I don't know, like you pass around some sort it's of like family family cup, you? You just, It's like right, the Stanley Cup. It's just like the Stanley Cup. We pass it around. <laughs> like how you know? perverted is that? And I'll keep it for Thanksgiving. That's so crazy. Like how perverted is that if you're an investigator on a case that you take a murder weapon and put you know, it on display? <laughs> There's so like, many things, right? The oh murder weapon? God. That was, and that was like one of my questions too. We wanted to know, we, we were talking about it earlier this morning. We were like, what, like that murder weapon, like when was that taken and shellacked and, and all that stuff? Was that during the case? Like, was this while Chester was on trial and like destroying evidence, you know, it's so crazy to me. I can't answer specifically when when this turned into the you know souvenir the Stanley Cup of, of LaSalle County as Andy says right I don't know exactly that timeline but but that tree branch is like one of many many different artifacts from this or pieces of evidence from this case that just basically there became this uh, there there developed this culture of souvenir trading of things related to the crime so like. Uh, people talked about many people talked about as kids growing up in that county going to the courthouse and they take them upstairs and let them rifle through the evidence. So you could try on the jacket that Chester allegedly wore to commit the crime. I, I'm not joking. You cannot make this up. Uh, kids were allowed to to put their hands on the evidence, try on the clothes. People kept, you know, the murder weapon. I mean, I could go on for days about yeah. just this. I don't know how else to describe it other than a souvenir culture, right? This this culture of we're going to commodify um, and and memorialize items associated with these murders, and then have sort of like yeah, like baseball cards. We'll trade them back and forth. And you know, the you know, thing about real that, Whitney, collectors will appreciate it. Whitney, if you remember when we were in court, so uh, not that long ago, we wanted access just to look at the evidence. Okay, mm -hmm. not just to look at it, just to literally take it out of the file cabinet, put it on a table and let us look at it. And the Will County State's Attorney's Office was objecting to that and was saying no. And I argued to the judge, you know, because like, as Whitney said, all these school groups had seen it. I said, judge, you know, Girl Scout Pack 204 has had more access to this evidence than me, you know? And it's true because all these field trips and school groups got to look at it. And the judge actually, you know, agreed with us and said, yeah, you know, uh, I think Chester's lawyer should be entitled to look at the evidence as well. Oh, man. Like that, that in and of itself is enough for me to be like, why did this man spend 59 years in prison? Like, that's so crazy. I mean, the um, lack of it's respecting the integrity of the evidence is really incredible. You know, I mean, really. Yeah, the due diligence was totally lost on this case. Like, totally. Well, and then there's just a, a, on a tangent here, it's just kind of disturbing to me because I can't even imagine like who thinks this is a great activity for kids. Like, let me get a bunch of second graders up into the attic of the courthouse and let them let them rifle through a box full of things associated with a triple homicide. Hey, that kids, let's great... talk about the Starve Rock murders. I know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's 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 so many layers to the weirdness of it. There's the injustice of it. There's the injustice of it. But there's just the straight up creepy factor. Yeah, that I just can't wrap my head around. No, 100%. I was thinking when, and, and I didn't even hear all of this before, obviously, but the um, the Dummett, like him just putting it on display, I was thinking like how dis disrespectful to the victim's families. 
Like that is just so right. Right. Putting aside who committed the crime. Yeah. I mean, that if if you're, you know, you've got that on your mantle, like right to the Mm -hmm. victim's families. Mm -hmm. You know what? I think it's, I'm sorry. I cut you off. Go ahead. No, you go. I was going to say, you know what? To me, it's somewhat analogous to, I mean, it's sort of like people call this the crime of the century, right? So then later on, we call like the OJ trial, the crime of the century. Sort of be like if Mark Furman kept the alleged knife and then put it in a shadow box on his mantle. Right. And people came over and he's like, oh, here, you know, this is uh, this is this is the murder. I mean, that would be so unacceptable and intolerable. Right. Twenty five years ago. Right. right. Now, in 2022, looking back on, on the different practices from 1960, it's appalling. And and it's just it's just so hard to wrap your mind around the fact that this was just completely socially acceptable behavior. Yeah, it's like horrifying. Um, I have a lot of questions about the actual evidence. Um, So help me unpack this one. So there's photos, right, of the women seen in clothes. We're saying skirts, but then a witness is saying, well, maybe one was seen in pants. And then the autopsy report, you mentioned on your podcast that the autopsies details of the actual clothing doesn't match what they were last seen in. So what do you make of the clothing? Were they in? It seems like it'd be simple to clear up. Like what's in the bag of evidence, pants or skirts, this scarf or that scarf? Like how did it get so mixed up? Yeah, it's it's very it's very confusing. I mean, it shouldn't be. Um, So it starts because we know from the autopsies, the women, nobody's wearing pants. You know, they're all wearing like skirts. So there are no pants. Um, What happened was, you know, they had this camera with them and the cameras recovered and there were photos recovered from the camera. So the speculation was those photos were taken shortly before they were killed. Well, that may or may not be true. We don't know. Uh, But what we talk about in the podcast is four separate people say on Monday, they saw the women leave the lodge and one of the one women in the group of three was wearing slacks. So, I mean, I don't know how you dismiss that. If it's one person, I think you could argue, well, maybe they just got it wrong. Two people, uh, four people say they were wearing slacks, which would mean that the women weren't killed on Monday. Maybe they were killed on Tuesday, which changes everything potentially, because then you have to look at what were people's alibis for Tuesday. And that was never done. They only focused on Monday. So I feel like the clothing, I didn't even get into the scarves. You're right. You know, in the scarves we talk about in the autopsy, you can read right in the autopsy what color the scarves were. And if you look at that photo uh, from the camera, uh, it doesn't match the scarf being worn in the autopsy. So it's just one of many issues we have raised. Like, well, huh, how do you explain that? I will say, so in looking at this case, what really shocked me was people being dismissive about, so for the our, our listeners, in case they didn't watch episode one, we, we talked about how there is kind of a debate on whether the murders happened on Monday or Tuesday, especially since someone who worked at the hotel had told one of the husbands that they had eaten breakfast the more Tuesday morning. Another so, huge point. Huge. So I worked at a hotel most of my, um, most of my adult life. I've worked in hospitality. To me, I mean, mind you, it's not 19, I'm not 1960, but we are aware a lot of affairs go on and the dismissive nature is normally like, well, that was a place that people had a lot of affairs. So usually there were stories made up to cover for them. We would never make up stories. We would just, you know, say we can't tell you any information. I mean, that's like you can get sued, you know, over like disclosing information like that. So I would, you know, just say, you know, I can't tell you anything, um, but, you know, call back later and maybe we can reach them. You know, like, so that's so weird to me that you would think that the hotel would make up or the lodge. Right. Up. And even at the time, though, the husbands know where to find their wives. It's not like they were like, hey, is my wife there? They were calling knowing that their wives were staying there. Right. And Whitney, can you explain how when they called on Tuesday, two people witnessed them pulling the records? Can you explain that issue? Yeah. So um, the woman that was the the front desk clerk was a woman named Esther Eikhoff. Um, and and she was she was there for many, many years. Uh, and she she testifies that she or there's a statement taken, I should say, there's a statement taken on Tuesday morning, a phone call is placed um, by one of the husbands inquiring as to the whereabouts of the three women. Now, 
Esther Eikhoff answers the phone. She supposedly takes out the record uh, of the women's stay and looks at the document indicating that they had gotten tickets to eat or they had redeemed their breakfast vouchers and had had breakfast that morning. Now, that could have been a mistake on her part. However, Terry Martin, who was the custodian, the groundskeeper for all of the state park in the lodge, he was standing there when the phone call came in and he said he glanced down and saw the document and saw the record that they had had breakfast. So it is at least corroborated. It's not just one person's error. Um, so that's what's just really mysterious. You know, uh, where were these women Tuesday morning? And mm-hmm. if they didn't show up to breakfast, why would you accidentally show? Th- I mean, you, you said you worked in hospitality. You don't just sort of accidentally say three people had breakfast who didn't. You know, it's it, oh. that, it's a very odd mistake to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 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 the so the, the husband's call inquiring about these women and, and, the, and the thing that's always kind of bothered me about this is that that was like the coldest winter on record. I think it still holds the record for being the coldest winter in, in central Illinois. And so if you have husbands calling saying, I, I don't know where my wife is, I haven't heard from her. And there's some ambiguity as to their whereabouts. And they went hiking and they haven't been seen. Even if your mind doesn't go to murder, wouldn't you be like, oh, no, we might have women lost in the woods. We had a blizzard. We should try to help them. But there's just this complete casual reaction to, I don't know, maybe they'll show up. I thought I saw them. I don't know. I don't know if I saw them. And that's always bugged me, just how casual everyone was. And then when it was like, oh, maybe we should look for them. Well, let's get some of the juvenile delinquents from the boys camp up the road. And they're busy until noon because they've got other important things going on, apparently. And when they do come, then we'll start looking for these women, you know, if we're not too busy. And, And that's just very troubling to me. On that note, so I wanted to ask this because I know you brought that up in the podcast. So I'm guessing, and correct me, like who orders the search? Like, does Nick Spiros have anything to do with that? I mean, like if these, if there's these issues arising within the hotel itself, like, hey, we're missing women. I feel like wouldn't it go up to Nick and he would kind of get local authorities involved or how did that search get organized? Yeah, there's no mention of Nick Spiros. He may have had something to say about it, but there's no mention of him in the official documentation. Um, the the local sheriff basically kind of deputizes in a very casual, unofficial manner the groundskeeper Terry Martin, the same guy who saw the the record of of the women eating breakfast. You know, he's basically saying, "Hey, why don't you go look for them?" But isn't and isn't get- that weird, Whitney? Let me let me just pause you. There. Isn't that weird? I mean. Why isn't why isn't law enforcement the one doing yeah. the search? Why are we having the guy uh, from the Marseilles youth camp and five of his you know young juvenile delinquent boys? Why are they doing it? Why isn't yeah. it like there's there's tons of law enforcement working on this case? Why aren't they out there doing it? It's just weird to me. Not I, to jump around. Quick question of that group of boys that do find the bodies was Jerry Nemke one of them, or he just attends the camp? He was not part of the. He was not part of the search, but he attended that same camp. Got it. Which is which is also very intriguing and weird. Yeah. Yeah. Which we For talked those. about quite a bit. Oh, we'll get there too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. We'll get down yeah. there. Um, if you didn't watch the first episode, um, that we did, um, Jerry Nemke actually killed another woman in a very similar fashion within the month of the Star of Rock murders. So we'll dive into that here shortly. But did you have more about the evidence? I think the twine matters. Yeah. Okay. So I have so many questions about the cord, the twine. Okay. Just because the way that uh, Warren describes his like eureka moment, it must be this cord. He says he's handling the evidence, which is scary in his office, um, counting the thread, the like the pieces to the cord. He's saying uh, 20 plus 12 equals two. And then he goes on this hunt for the cord was when you look at the, the photos of the evidence or the cordage itself, is it two cords combined? I mean, from what I know about cords, like if you're actually going to take 32 strands and make it into one cord, you unravel them all and then you have to like re um, or like retwist them and set it. It doesn't just happen to be like two cords are just twisted into one. It's still two cords unless you undo it all and redo it all. So when he goes to, I think you mentioned like the kitchen or to the lodge, right? Yeah. Two sets of cords and just adds them together. And that's supposed to be the exact same cordage that was found at the crime scene. Like, how do we get there? 
the other thing I, I could I could we could do a whole show on the just the, on the cord and the twine. So I just rewatched, you know, the HBO docuseries, too. And I saw that kind of dramatic footage where he's got the 20 plus the 12. Right. Uh, you really can't tell from the photos. It's hard to tell. Um, but there are handwritten notes and we're going to we haven't gotten into this yet in the podcast. We're going to. There's two types of twine, 20 strand and 10 strand, not 12. 20 and 10. Um, and it's on one of the victims. I think one of them just had 20 strand. Uh, so it does look like maybe there were two types used. They noticed that there were two types used. But the biggest takeaway for me is there's no definitive evidence that this is the same twine used in the lodge. I mean, it, it, there's not even evidence that this is some kind of unique twine. You know, I mean, it, it, it's no different than twine that could have been used anywhere. So it was, to, in, to me, complete speculation that, oh, it's the same twine as used in Starbrock Lodge. And even if it was, which they didn't prove, doesn't mean it wasn't the same twine used in 20 restaurants in LaSalle or at uh, 20 different butcher shops in the surrounding area. You know, uh, so there's a lot, a lot to talk about with the twine, right? Well, it just seemed like such a leap that they were like, it's the twine. It's from the kitchen. It's right. definitely Chester yeah. because his name was on that list. Like you see with, I don't know, you would know how many other suspects at the time. Right. And, and like I said, it doesn't to me, uh, they've never proved it matched the kitchen. Um, they've never proved it's anything other than common twine. And in the documents that we're going to post, it's 20 ply and 10 ply not 12. So I'm not even sure what that's all about. It doesn't, it's not consistent with the documents and the notes we've got from the detectives or the prosecutors. Or Warren's last statement of 32. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a document we haven't gotten there. There's going to be a future episode. It is amazing. It's handwritten notes of either. I'm not sure if it's one of the prosecutors or one of the detectives. Um, but it has all these different things in there that are inconsistent with Chester Weger is guilty all in one two page handwritten note. So we're, we're going to get into that. That's going to be a really fun episode to talk about. I'm assuming that's stuff that wasn't in the hands of the defense either then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about this. Can I pause for a second? I understand. Okay. The case is tried based on the law at the time, right? Brady versus Maryland, 1963, can you imagine having a trial and uh, I get charged with murder, Andy Hale, and the state knows that there are two witnesses who described seeing the murder and said it was not me, and they are not obligated to tell me that. I mean, like, can you believe we even had a system not that long ago, 1960, where the state doesn't even have to tell you they have evidence that proves that supports your innocence, like that hair report, you know, that we talk about in the podcast, the November 23rd, 1960 Washington University Medical School report that says the hair they tested on Miss Murphy's glove is not Chester Weger. They don't turn it over. They don't have to turn it over. But boy, wouldn't it have been nice if Chester Weger had that? You know, I mean, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. It's like, and it's like, why would you, I mean, I understand we, we talk about this in the first episode that there for police, there's certain things they have to do, you know, in a County, you don't want crime kind of running rampant. There's certain numbers they have to, but it's like, why would you want the wrong person, especially for a crime like that? Because that's a repetitive crime. Like that's not something that just happens the once, which is where I think your argument for Jerry Nemke is extremely strong because it's just like, that's one, but I know there's so much more you're going to go into. There's so many more suspects that there. Well, be. I'm going to flip the script on you a little bit on the episode that's coming out. Oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and we'll get to. I'm so jealous. I was thinking. Well, yeah, was you're gonna have to. You're gonna have to have us back on because you're gonna oh, be like. You're gonna want to ask me a lot of questions after the yeah. next podcast episode. Well, because I'm I agree, Jerry Nemke right now of the suspects mm -hmm. is at the top of the list because, like I say in the podcast, who bashes somebody's face in? Like, I mean, it's not punched. It's not kicked. It's literally like bashed your face in, so we can't even recognize it. Well, the answer is. Jerry Nemke, that's who does it, because yeah. he did it to this 16-year-old girl. He bashed her face in with a brick a month later. Oh, and he lived at the nearby youth camp, the same place where the search party boys found the victim. So 
you know, he clearly is at your top of the list of suspects for those reasons, right? But in an alternate universe, can I just make this argument? Dan- Danielle loves when I like make alternate arguments. I do because um, like, I'm so opinionated. <laughs> so I love that when she like throws like a role for me because I'm always like, oh, yeah, I didn't think of it that way. Throw when up we the alternate down, universe argument. <laughs> when we were going down this Jerry Nemke like rabbit hole, it didn't. It did, what didn't make sense to me was like, okay, he got away with at the time. It's a month later, right? So not got away with it yet, but killing three women. And then he gets caught literally a month later because he goes on the date with the waitress and and kills her in a very similar manner. To me, it felt like very copycat. Like this is in the media. This is like very front and center. Fair point. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know, though. I don't know. That's a pretty that's a pretty crazy copycat. Like, you know, I mean, you got a date with somebody and then a why do you want to kill her? And then B, you're going to kill her in this brutal fashion like copycat seems to me that that just seems like a stretch you know for that kind of a crime uh but i only make that leap because i don't know or feel maybe you'll go here on your podcast that it is jerry i think he's a very unsavory person there's a lot to do with as you mentioned on your podcast too like his future wife can we jump to that or well not his future wife now she's deceased his wife, because we're t- it ties back to Council Bluffs, which is he- Omaha, for example. Ah, I'll um, let Whitney get into that part. She's the one who took a deep okay. dive into Jerry Nemke. Whitney, you probably yes. already know this. Yeah. Her murder got solved. It's closed. Okay. Okay, so who did they? Wait, wait. Yes. I thought this was the biggest uh, unsolved mystery in Council Bluffs. Wait, tell Until me, tell a me month more. ago. February. We're sitting on this for you. Yes. <gasps> Okay, so Thomas um, O. Freeman was a trucker. Um, is he's the one? They actually figured this out because of DNA um, wow. and a genealogist. Um, so um, they found out that okay, they're thinking always oh, a trucker. He's passing by. Her hotel was on the interstate. Um, but get this: Thomas O. Freeman was murdered a couple months later and buried in a shallow grave in Cobden. Illinois, so Southern Illinois, and oh. that's 15 minutes from where Jerry Nemke went to school. So they're no still way. working on... Thomas Freeman, I'm going to have to have a whole podcast episode about this now and have you on as a guest. Yeah. On my I, podcast. I oh but, my gosh. I mean, the strange just gets stranger. That like, When did this get solved? This These details just came out February 25th, February 28th, so like literally less than a month ago. Wow. So right after we filmed, or last, okay, yeah. so it, so that came out right after we recorded the podcast. Wow, it, through it's DNA like, testing. Yeah, they through DNA testing and through genealogy because they were like, yeah, you had to figure out who, um, uh, you know, who, how how they didn't have Thomas Freeman's DNA, so they found a relative. That's how they figured out it was him, his DNA. Then they wow. found out he's murdered and he was buried. So who killed him? And then that. And, and actually, they have um, Jerry Nemke as like uh, as the main suspect right now, I guess, or one of the pe- person of interest, I guess, actually, maybe not a named suspect. So you I have mean- me going down a rabbit hole here because one of the things that was really uh, creepy about Jerry Nemke uh, is that he apparently had retaliatory tendencies. And shortly after his second trial, where he was resentenced to life as opposed to the electric chair, the foreman of his jury's house was burned. It was ruled an arson. His wife and daughter were killed and police, you know, wanted to know who had done it. And the the theory that could never be proven was that Jerry Nemke had ordered it and gotten someone else to do it. And so it's sort of interesting that now you have another sort of allusion to a retaliation, right? Um, in, In the sphere of Jerry Nemke. And I just, Jerry Nemke is just one of those guys that if I were writing like a scripted narrative, like, He's just that sinister character where everyone in his orbit meets some sort of demise that's unsavory. And you know, Whitney, like away from the chaos. The -hmm. thing that really bugs me is, you know, he just passed away a couple years ago. I would have loved, I would have just flown down. He was in Florida somewhere. I forget what town he was living in. Oh God, of course he was. (laughs) He was in Florida. And here's the thing. He's somebody's next door neighbor, right? I mean, like, oh, Jerry's great. He gets my mail every day. You know, Um, (laughs) I would have just knocked on his door. And said, hey, I'd love to talk to you about uh, Starve Rock Murders. And 
see what he said. You know, I mean, uh, I would have loved to have talked to him about the whole thing. Just a little too late. Damn. To add that one more detail, though, that you were going to touch on. So you mentioned that, okay, I have in in here, J. Donald Knapp um, Mm -hmm. was the the jury foreman. And you mentioned his house burns down. His wife and daughter are die from that. But Herman Oding was his boss, right? Right. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. I know for myself, since transitioning to a working from home environment, the importance of taking care of your own mental health. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You'll be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Now, it's not a crisis line and it's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. The service is available for clients worldwide and you can log into your account anytime, day or night to message your therapist. It's more affordable than traditional in-person therapy and financial aid is available. You can visit their website and read other clients' testimonials that are posted daily. Visit betterhelp.com slash ITT, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And for listeners of Innocent Till Tipsy, you can go to their website and get an additional 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash ITT. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash I-T-T. So we got a hold of Andy and Whitney and we couldn't stop talking. <laughs> oh, so many questions. And we didn't want to overwhelm you all. We definitely overwhelmed them, <laughs> which is fine. That's what a surprise. <laughs> um, so we wanted to cut this episode into two pieces. Therefore, like if you, you know, need to take a break, come back and see us. Um, but we're going to be releasing them both right now. So it's available right now. So if you just want to binge this series, do it right now. But um, yeah, our Starve Rock murders turned into a three-part series. Who would have known? And I feel like there's going to be more. I ha- I still have some questions. My God, it's so good. So bad. They are amazing. They're just wealths of information on this case. Um, so yeah, go right now to the next episode. Don't miss out. Do it. Ahura Media Production. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.